We are back in our, our, our study of Revelation. We never really left the series, although we've taken some pauses. Much, m- most of what we've done over this last year and a half really have been focused towards really trying to emphasize that God is the God of all time. He always has been, always will be, and is right now in a, in a season that is filled with trouble and angst, and, and we may not feel it quite as intensely today as we did over the last few years there's a reality that we felt shaken in part, not, in part it's because there's real trouble in the world, but part of the reason it resides so deeply within us or causes so much angst within us is because there's a way in which though we believe he's God, we don't believe completely in his godness and we begin to doubt how big, how powerful, how amazing, his knowledge of the whole thing. And, and, and so there's a way in which we thought, you know what, as a church, it would be helpful for us to spend some time looking at the God who's always been and always will be God. And so we started, we actually started in Revelation with a look at his claims to that, went to Genesis and began looking at God's creation, looking at God's covenants, looking at God's uh, commanding of his people, God's commissioning of his people, and now we're into the God, uh, the work of his consummation, of his bringing it to an end. And we took a pause over Advent, but we still had this eye towards the reality that the end is coming. Like there's a God who's out there and he is coming and he's got promises uh, both of blessing and curses that are associated with that. And so as we studied Advent, we we looked through those things and talked about those things. Um, And then last week we, we kind of closed that off still with a call to abide in Christ who is the Savior of our God, who himself says in Revelation that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so, so that's where we're at. We're coming back now to this study of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 6, but let me, let me set it up again for you because we, we've, we've been walking through it. And we've, we saw the first vision, and there was a way in which in the first vision, the glory of Christ breaks through the veil the, of this natural world, breaks through the veil, and John experiences and sees that on the island of Patmos. So, I mean, you might envision him on the beach one morning worshiping on, on this, and don't picture a nice pretty beach but like this is a deserted island kind of beach where he's being confined right separated from the rest of the world because he won't quit preaching Christ but Jesus shows up on the beach and he he hears the voice and he turns and sees and the glory of Christ breaks through him he sees Jesus walking among the lampstands that represent the seven churches that are going to be the primary audience of the first recipients of this letter so then that vision finishes and, and almost immediately we're moved into the second vision, which is, begins with a door and a call to come away from Patmos and up into the throne room of God. And so the setting of this place is set for us in, in Revelation chapter 4, where John has been called into the throne room of God. And he sees, when he walks into that, he sees before him an eternal worship service, a service in which God's people, or not God's people, the angels, the heavenly beings are worshiping God day and night, singing his praises, extolling his name. And it just is, he's at the very center of it all. And everything revolves around and is oriented towards him. And that's the setting. And we see that in chapter four, and it demonstrates the worthiness of God to be Worshipped, and then we, t- we 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 get into chapter five, and the next the next moment of this revelation, 
And we find that though there's this eternal worship service that John walks into the middle of, he walks into it and is called into it at a very particular time to witness a very particular event. And chapter 5 opens with the view of a scroll in the hand of God who sits on the throne and a call from a mighty angel. Who can open the scroll? Can anyone open the scroll? Silence. Now just think about this for a minute. Because there's a lot of saints that have gone before that you might think, well, they they could do it. But David, the king, the man who was after God's own heart, could he do it? No. Could could any of the the patriarchs of Israel do it? Moses and, and any of the elders of Israel, could they do it? No. Could, could, could Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob do it? No. Could Noah do it? All men who had extremely important and significant roles in the work of God throughout the redemptive history, none could do it. And not only did no man or no saint answer, neither did any other heavenly being. And John weeps. And so this sets for us this tension. There's this scroll that represents God's plans of redemption and judgment that cannot be opened except by one worthy to open it. John weeps, and then an angel tells him, weep no more. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And John, he stops weeping, he looks up, and he he turns his eyes to to the throne, and he sees at the center of the throne, he sees a lamb as one had been slain, as if it had been slain. A bloody lamb who is the lion of Judah, the the root of David, who's demonstrated through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection that he is worthy to open the scroll. And that's where we left off. This recognition that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is worthy to open the scroll that's going to reveal God's redemptive purposes and purposes of judgment throughout history We left off right there. Well, chapter 6 is going to pick up immediately after that at the opening of the seals. So let's begin to read Revelation chapter 6. We're going to read all 17 verses, uh, and then we'll come back and we will work through them. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. 
They, they, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their, and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Let's pray. Father, oh, we need you with us today. We need you with us every day, but today, especially as I think about the ways in which the assumptions made about even the different perspectives that sit in, in this room today of these seals. And though no, I know I'm of one perspective, one perspective of many, I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you will press into to, to the depths of our heart what really is true that we would be able to celebrate the realities of these seals as your children rather than be, live in fear of them, that we would be able to honor the one who breaks them, live glorifying his name because he really is worthy, but also that it would shape every aspect of our life until the day comes that the foundations of the earth are shaken and his judgments are made. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the breaking of the seals reveals Jesus' sovereign reign over the events of the last days, from his resurrection to his return. The breaking of the seals reveals Jesus' sovereign reign over the events of the last days, from his resurrection to his return. Now, we... we we're introduced in chapter 5 to this scroll. And I already in, informed you that there was different opinions about the scroll and what it, what it was. Well, I told you then kind of how I'm going to approach this and how I'm going to teach it is that that scroll, the contents of that scroll contains God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, that immediately, immediately, I know, is different than what some of the people sitting in this room, the view is, is going to be different than your view. And that's okay. I'm, I'm fine. I often tell people this. I don't mind if you hold a position. If you don't mind being wrong, I don't mind, it. I don't mind you being wrong. If, if I'm just, I'm really, I, that is, a, I am joking. It, there's a way in which we can disagree about this. There's a lot of mystery around this stuff. Right? And it's okay, but, but just know as we work through this, we are not looking at these seals and this scroll as something that's being saved for after the rapture and the breaking begins. 
after some moment where the church is removed from the world, I really believe, and I think this is the best, the, the best way the whole book fits together, is to see these seals and this scroll as, redempti- as, as, as um, representative of all of the last days. In the last days, if you look to the Scripture to determine what are the last days, well, there's a number of ways that it's, it's phrased. The last days, the last hour, the last times, the end of ages are all terms used by Peter, Paul, John, uh, Peter, Paul, John, Jude. There's one in Jude, right? They're, 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 these phrases are used, and if you pay attention as you're reading, you're rec- you'll recognize pretty quickly that these people who are writing the letter are writing the letters to people who also believe the end is at any moment. It could happen right now. Like, I, I maybe not, don't finish this sentence. And for some of you, you'd be like, okay, that's fine with me. Well, it'd be okay with me too because Jesus is back and everything's better. But the reality is, is that there was a view in the New Testament that these believers thought that they were in the end days, they, the, the presentation of it in the letters. For example, John writes, children, it is the last hour. This is 1 John 2.18. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now, even in the life of John, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Their view was that the last days had already begun. They weren't waiting for some cataclysmic or some supernatural event. They, they, the view of the New Testament authors and the New Testament church was... They were in the last days. So this scroll then, it it seems to me, is best represented as one that's containing God's plans of redemption and judgment across the last days. The last days are now, and Jesus is reigning now. When he said um, in Matthew 28, 18, as the disciples gather around him, and just before he's going to ascend into heaven, he says what? All authority is given to me. It's, it's going to be given. It's, not gonna, it's at some time coming. I have all authority right now. There's a way in which we live in this world, and we, we forget this, though, right? And so we come to the troubles and the trials of life, and we think, oh, What's our immediate response often? Now, as a mature believer, this may not be any longer your immediate response, but positions of, where's God in this? Have you heard that question over the last few years? Somebody asking, where's God in all of this? Has God forgotten us? What did I do to deserve this? We begin to doubt that God loves us, or that God remembers us, or that God's powerful enough to work for us. Jesus is letting us know, even from the moment before he ascended into heaven, it all belongs to me. It all belongs to me. And now as John comes into this, to this scene where he sees the need for one worthy to open the scroll, he steps in and he sees it and he begins to see. What, what does he see? He doesn't see Jesus immediately reigning and ruling and sitting with a crown on the back of a white horse. What's the opening of the scrolls connected to? The slain lamb. The risen slain lamb. That's what makes him worthy. And it's from the moment of his death and resurrection that he begins the work of opening the seals and bringing about 
the consummation, the final promises of his work. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest, and I'll, I'll try to remind you of this as we get to the next sets of seven. So there's the seals, there's the, the, the trumpets, and there's the bowls, and there's these three courses of seven. I would suggest to you that all three of them represent the same time frame. So that John tells us the story that the unfolds for us, the vision of the seals, and that represents the last days from his, his uh, resurrection to his return. And then he turns and he gives us another telling of it from another perspective, which is the trumpets, and it covers the time from his, from, from his resurrection to his return, and the bowls, I suggest, would suggest is the same thing. It's called recapitulation recapitulation. If you like big fancy terms, that's what it's called. But John is recapitulating and telling us that it's the same, talking about the same time period from different perspectives. The best illustration I've heard of it is this. I actually got this from Sam Storms. He talks about the time, about going and watching a football game. And he says, you know what? Just imagine that you get tickets to the game. And you go, and it's, they're great tickets. You've got a great seat. You're on the 50-yard line, and you're able to see everything that's happened on the field. And, and I mean, you can, you can almost hear the coach on the sideline screaming at his players, right? Like that, you're just that close, and you're able to see that much. And that's one perspective. But now imagine there's another person sitting at the end, down, down at the end zone, looking at the field from another perspective, it's the same game, same set of events, same things are happening, but they have a, you have a horizontal perspective, a landscape perspective, and they have a portrait perspective. So things look a little bit different. They're going to see things that you won't see. You'll see things that they won't see. Well, then imagine, yourself, imagine to yourself that there's actually one more perspective that we could consider, the Goodyear blimp that flies over so many games. That's a whole other perspective. Right? So it seems that what John is doing with these seals is giving us our initial perspective of what Jesus intends to do, what God's plan is for these last days. In fact, I think, you know, last week we, we talked about this in the Abide Sermon. In John 14 through 16, Jesus sits down with his disciples, gives them what's called the farewell discourse. And why does he do that for them? Because he knows he's about to go into a garden and be arrested and be crucified and end up in the ground within about 24 to 36 hours, depending on time frames. But he's going to end up in the ground really soon. And he wants his disciples ready for that. He wants them prepared for that. So he gives them the farewell discourse. I would suggest to you that he gave us this revelation through John so that we would be made ready to live in these last days in the same way that the apostles, in the same way that the early church, in the same way that the medieval church, in the same way that the, new, that the present church and the church that resides after we're dead and gone, should he tarry, is made ready, is blessed with the understanding that he is sovereign over the events of the last days, every last one of them. So as we work through these seals, though John has seen them all broken, I believe what, you're, what, what I believe is happening is that some of those have already begun to occur and some are yet to happen. And I know that that's distinct, a distinct view from some of you. That the popular view in America, in, in the American church, is that everything's future. 
But I want to, let's dig into it. So I don't want to, I don't want you to, I, I, I've done enough setup and maybe caused enough confusion. I just let's dig in and see how this works out. And the first four we can go over together. So the Lord's sovereign reign permits and initiates the horseman's ride. Now we go back to it and see it, right, in verses 1 through 8. We can see these four steels get broken and four horsemen ride. Four horsemen are called out and commanded to, to, to go, right, to, to come, to go do the work that they've set out to do. We have the first seal and the first horseman is, is conquest, right, came out conquering and to conquer. The whole purpose of that horseman is to bring conquest. Now, just one more point of distinction is there's lots of people, and maybe many of you in this room are going to say, that's Jesus. And the reason for that is because it's connected immediately to the idea that he's riding a white horse, and white oftentimes, 14 times, I think, in the book of Revelation, represents purity. That also represents victory. Um, and, and, and so then, but more importantly, they say, well, hey, at the very end, Revelation 19.11, Jesus is going to ride out on a white horse. But if our only connection to Jesus being this first horseman and Jesus being on that white horse in the end, if we look closer, that's the only thing they hold in common is the white horse. This horseman rides out carrying a bow, which is a weapon of warfare, which is a weapon that men use, not Christ. What's Christ's weapon that he rides out with? The sword from his mouth, which is the word of God. Right? It, it, this this Horseman rides out and is followed immediately by what? Warfare, destruction, pain, suffering. When Jesus comes out, absolutely there's judgment. In fact, the immediate passage after is the Supper of the Lamb where judgment falls. But it's the establishment of, of the judgment of sinful people that actually bring the vindication of God's people in the chapters that follow. But this brings it to everyone. In fact, we read in the fifth seal, even Christians aren't, they're not spared this. There's going to be people who die in the name of Christ because these horsemen are riding. So I, I think that this is really a counterfeit. I think the reason that he's on a white horse is because it's an, it's an evil force. It's a, a, a demonic spirit that's presenting himself or itself as a angel of light that's going to bring good. Just follow my rule. I've got the answer for you. Just submit to my leadership. Just come unto me. You hear that much in this world? People calling out to come and submit yourself under them. And they never once mention any submission unto Christ. But they got the answer. I think the spirit has been writing since the day that Jesus says it. He's, he's not the capital A Antichrist that we would expect in the end, but he's definitely, I believe, a little A Antichrist in the sense that he is opposed to our Savior and is a counterfeit, but will wreak havoc as he deceives the nations with his call to submit and come up under him. And he will conquer by evil means. And there are some people that would suggest that this is the going out of the gospel and the conquering of the gospel that Jesus Christ, I just don't believe it holds weight. And one further reason I would suggest this is that if you take these verses and compare the seven seals, the six seals that we just read about, to Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 6, 
You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. You are going to hear of people out conquering and conquesting one another. And immediately, the next verses seven uh, starts in six, verse seven and eight, detailing out what follows: conflict, scarcity, and death. And you skip a section because it was the removal of the temple and the and the end of the Jewish nation as a as at the end of the old covenant. And then you come to see God's people suffer. But you can lay that out across Matthew chapter 24, which is Jesus' telling of the end days, of the end times. But he says, hey, you're going to hear these things, but the end is not yet. And then he progresses through this teaching to the point where he gets to a place where he ends at the same judgment that John ended at, the end of creation, the end of the world as we know it. So anyway, first seal, horsemen, conquest. I believe that is a demonic force, a demonic spirit that influences men and women in the world, and they go out to conquer and conquest as if they've got the solution and that they can be the Savior, and they will fail at every turn. Following that, immediately united to that, is the second seal and the second horseman, which is conflict. He's permitted to take peace from the earth. Think about that. This, this is not a good thing, right? This is not a good... There's, and, and really, these next three, there's no debate over there. Everybody tends to, to agree. These are demonic spirits. These are evil forces at play. But this, this horseman permitted to take peace from the earth. Do we live in a time known as peace? Would, would you cla- ca- classify or categorize our lives as filled with and ruled by peace? Probably not. In fact, no time in history has been because of our sin, but there's a clear way in which there are always wars, conflict, waging, in which men and women, we kill one another. The third seal and the horseman uh, represents scarcity. It comes out with scales to weigh out, to, to, to exchange and barter with people, right? And, and from the throne, from among the, the four living creatures, a voice, a quart of wheat, a, a three quarts of barley for a denarius. It's about a day's wages. It's an inflated price. It demonstrates scarcity and the oppression and taking advantage of people because there is a scarcity, so the, the law of supply and demand at play. We're going to charge exorbitant prices, and so, so, so people are going to feel the weight of this. But don't touch the oil and the wine. Now, some people believe that there's a sacramental uh, component to this. Some people believe that the oil and the wine represent that you know rich people are going to get rich people richer and poor people are going to get poorer. And the reality is, I, th- I think what we see is that there's a limitation of the scarcity. That though things are scarce, there's still ways in which people will find and be consumed with affluence and comfort in this world. Then finally, the fourth seal in the horseman is death. Name death. And the only one given a name, but it's given authority over a quarter of the people. He's going to kill. And following the horseman called death is Hades, the realm of the dead. So it only it makes sense they're connected. Now, the, the, the thing is, is that as we look at this, we say, oh man, this is terrible. This is horrible. I, I, but this is where we get to be, right? Like when, when, this, when this kind of stuff happens, when, when conquerors come, when conflict happens, when scarcity is felt, when death occurs, what do we do? Where's God? 
Has he forgotten? Does he love? Is he as powerful as he says he is? And I'm here to tell you that as the one who's actually breaking the seals, Jesus is sovereign over these horsemen. It's his death and resurrection that initiates their ride. Like His death and resurrection is what enabled him to be worthy to stand in that place, to take that scroll, to begin to break the seals. Otherwise, there would have been no answer to the question given by the angel, is anyone worthy? Jesus was worthy because he conquered death and he rose again. He conquered sin and death and he rose again. It's his death and resurrection that initiates these. It's, it's the Lord that determines the extent of their authority. You can go back and look at them again. A, a crown was given to the first rider. Where did it come from? The only one who's able to give crowns is Christ. It's distinct and different than the diadems that he's going to wear, but it looks like the same. It, it's the same word, actually, as the wreath that's given to the saints who endure in chapter 2. The crown is given to that first rider. The second rider is permitted. He doesn't have the authority in and of himself. The second rider is permitted to remove peace. His authority is subservient to. It's limited by. A voice from the throne, from among the four living creatures, which likely is Christ. A voice from the throne limits how far scarcity will spread. The fourth rider doesn't have authority to just go out and slay everybody. Jesus intends to use all of these things, all the things that the enemy intends to use for evil, by his death and resurrection, he's able to turn around and use for good. He's not just the worthy lamb because of his death and resurrection. He's become the sovereign lamb that can take everything and turn it to the good of his people. He will use these things to accomplish his greater purposes. So it's the, you know, the story of, uh, of the Old Testament. The things that you meant for evil, God intended for good. None of us want to get arrested. None of us want to get thrown in pits and left for dead. And our parents told lies about our, about our demise. None of us want to be arrested. None of us want to be enslaved. None of us want to be under the authority of bad leaders. But when, when Jacob's brothers come and, they, and they, they need his help, and they find out their brother's alive, what does he tell them? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God didn't just provide for his brothers either. He provided for a whole nation and people to come to that nation to be blessed. It's similar to the idea of the things that happen with Job, right? Is that there is a limitation to how far God allows these things to go. But he intends them to to be used for his glory and the good of his peoples. Uh, G.K. Beale writes this and makes this comment. These trials have the effect of, of, of not only of punishing pagan nations, but also purifying the faithful within the covenant community while punishing those even within the church who are not obedient to Christ. You think about that. If left to ourselves without the discipline of a, of a loving father, what would we do? We're people who are prone to wonder. We sing songs about that. We are like sheep that are scattered. We, we, we go astray. And the discipline of a loving father draws us back. But as he purifies his church and keeps his church in step with the truth of his word, he's also bringing judgment on the world in which we live. He is sovereign over these things. 
It started, it's always been going, but clearly it's been purposed since the time of Christ to be used in this way. Next, we come to the fifth seal. And this refers to the church. The Lord's sovereign reign requires the church to endure patiently. And when we come to this, we're only hearing the voices of the martyrs, those who are dead, those whose souls are actually in the presence of God. But I I want you to be clear. I think they are representative of all of God's people. Just all of us are not there. Our souls don't reside in his presence, right? We are still here. These souls are in heaven. They are residing in his presence. And they are calling on God in the, in, in the language of lament. The same way we might do that if we begin to read and open the psalm. Oh, Lord, how long, oh, Lord? But they are there offering this prayer in his presence. Partly because these are hard and difficult things. Conquest, conquerors coming and exercising poor uh, and, and, and unbeneficial authority, bad authority over people is a difficult thing. That's what di- dictators and, and, and uh, tyrants, they aren't good for people, they're good for themselves, right? Nobody appreciates them, nobody enjoys them. Uh, conflict, where people are killing one another, no one enjoys that. Living in a world where we compete over and have to pursue over and scrape and and earn every little thing because everything in this world is, not everything, but most things are marked with scarcity. It's not a pleasant life. So we, we, we we don't call out to God simply because we long for part of why we call out to God, how long, O oh Lord, is because these things are hard. They are not a pleasure to us. They don't bring pleasure into our lives. And knowing that God is sovereign doesn't make it a walk in the park. But it does enable us to endure in faith. Knowing that God is sovereign doesn't remove the trial of the trial. But it does enable us to endure in faith. Notice who these ones who have lost their lives, who are under the altar, are calling out to. How long, O Lord? You sovereign God, holy and true. They're calling out to him. Go back to the Psalms and read the laments. Who are they calling out to? They're not denying the hardship of the world. They're not denying the difficulty of having enemies come against them. They're not denying that this is a difficult life. But they are trusting in the one who is actually able to provide a solution. And they are calling on him. Every one of us, every one of us face these things. The scripture tells us every one of us are going to face hardship if we seek to live according to the word of Christ. Every one of us are going to deal with this stuff. Some of us are going to die as a result of it. Knowing that God is sovereign doesn't make it pleasant, but enables us to endure in the midst of it faithfully. And as we endure faithfully, it actually, bring, it actually brings pleasure to our Father who is in heaven. Now let me, let me be clear about this. It is not your suffering that gives him pleasure. 
It is your faith in the midst of suffering that brings him pleasure. It is not his pleasure that people have to die in his son's name. But it is his pleasure that faith is proven true. And to the glory of his name, faith is proven true. And they would choose death over rejecting the Savior. These are sacrifices that are pleasing unto the Lord. These are people who read Romans 12 before it was numbered Romans 12 and heard, because all this is true, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. These are people who actually believed that. And God received it with pleasure because it demonstrated they saw his glory as the greatest treasure. That's foreign to many of us. Because we live in a world consumed with comfort and affluence. And we feel like we can guard ourselves and, and distance ourselves from the struggles. But it only takes a little bit of time before the, before the trial and the tribulation falls on your doorstep. Knocks on your door. And you don't get the choice as to whether to answer it or not. Because you don't get to choose when the times and seasons start, nor do you get to choose when they end. But can you walk and endure in faith because you know our God is sovereign over the horsemen riding and the, and the, and the havoc they're wreaking? Even unto death. But not only is it a, a, a glorifying thing to God that people would die in the name of his son, it also sets us apart from those in the world. And that really becomes clear in the sixth seal. The Lord's sovereign reign governs the great day of wrath. So we see him sovereignly reigning, initiating, permitting the horsemen to ride. We see him sovereignly reigning. Uh, oh, we didn't even touch on this. I'm into. But when, when, the, when the people call out, when the saints that have been persecuted and, and, and killed for their faith call out, what does he say? Rest a little longer. The time is not yet. You and I don't get to determine when the time comes. He's sovereign and calls us as the church to endure in faith. And the Lord's sovereign reign then also governs the great day of wrath. And we come to that. We come down to this passage. He opens the sixth seal. And we think havoc is brought in conquerors and conflict and scarcity and death. I, I think, I'm just guessing Mountains and islands being moved from their place and the sky being rolled up like a scroll is a little bit more havoc than that. This is big stuff. The end of the world as we know it. And so that's why I would suggest that from the time of Christ, dying and rising and then ascending into heaven, he takes his place at the, at the center of the throne room of God and he begins to break those seals and he allows for a time these horsemen to ride and his church to endure but make no mistake, there is a time coming when a great tribulation will occur. So much so that those who are not faithful will call out to the mountains and the rocks, hide us. Tom Schreiner writes this in his commentary on this. He, the prospect of standing before God and the Lamb is so dreadful that death is preferable. 
I'd rather be crushed by a rock or swallowed up by the earth than face God with no understanding that that doesn't get them away from standing before God. It just ushers them in, right? It just brings them in closer and more immediately to the judgment. This is reminiscent of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do when they heard God walking in the garden? He would come to walk in the cool of the day and fellowship with them and allow them to be in an, in an immediate and experiential way in his presence. And they hear him walking in the garden after they've eaten the fruit, and what's their first thought? Hide. This is what the unregenerate world does. Rather than endure in faith, rather than recognize the sovereignty of God, they seek to do everything they can to distance themselves, to escape him, to undermine his authority, and try to have their own way. We don't want to stand before God, so fall on us, crush us, kill us. We can't, we can't let him have us. Oh, he's going to have you. That is a dreadful, dreadful thing. The breaking of the seals reveals Jesus' sovereign reign over the events of the last days from his resurrection to his return. So what? Why does this matter? Such an important question. Because this is what enables us, prepares us, equips us to wait on him in faith. Wait on him in faith. Rest a little longer. The end is not yet. But when it comes... God remains sovereign. We're actually going to look at it next week more in depth, but the interlude that comes in chapter 7 between the sixth seal and the eighth seal is actually a promise that the church will remain undefeated in the midst of this time. The gates of Hades will not prevail. God, God's people will be victorious because God is God. Wait on him in faith. Pray to him for justice. We, we, we so, so often we run into the world, we, justice, 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 we need justice, we were going to make justice, justice, justice. When's the last time you pled to God for justice? That's what these people are seeking is justice. There is no way a fallen sinful world will ever provide or, or exact the justice that's truly just. It's not going to happen. And, and brother and sister Christian, as much as I love you, those of you that I know, I love you all, but there's a way in which some of you I know well, and I can say this in truth about, and I know this about myself, my desire for justice is often driven more for a desire of personal vengeance. Because I'm still fighting, fighting this flesh that is at work within me that longs to be vindicated. I'll wait on him for faith. I'll pray to him for justice. And let me just show how this works out further because we're going to skip past seven. I'm going to read to you Revelation 8, 1 through 5. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So the six seals, trouble. The seventh seal breaks, silence. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets, and it prepares us now to hear the trumpet blast and the trumpet judgments. But then back to verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer, with what? To offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. 
and the smoke of the incense went with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The immediate connection to this prayer, these prayers that are being lifted up, are the prayers of the saints who are, How long, O Lord? Not that not every prayer could be represented here, but the immediate context demands we not ignore the prayers of the martyred saints who are seeking God's justice. The prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This fire falls on the earth in judgment in response to the prayers of the saints. You long for justice? You pray to him for justice. One day he'll bring it. But don't dismiss the fact. Don't dismiss this. I mean, remember this. Please remember this. As you cry out for justice, don't forget the mercy that you've been given. Otherwise, if not for his mercy and his grace, you too would burn up in the judgment. So pray for him to do justice. Live as bold witnesses to him. Bear witness to him, even if it costs you your life. Most of us don't have to die. But most of us would, would withdraw a bold witness. We would, we, would, we would step back from the opportunity to bear witness in an act of fear or self-preservation, an act of self-love. And think about the reasons that we don't go out telling everybody we know about the great, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation we've been offered. I don't know enough. I'm afraid I'll be rejected. I might have to, I might lose a job. I might not have a paycheck. Or most of us are not, in, at least in this country, most of us are not going to die. We're not going to have to worry about being marched out onto a beach and have our throats slit because we will not deny the name of Jesus. But many of us know that there are social pressures, that there are relationships that we value so greatly that we're afraid to say the true thing and to live as bold witnesses. Let me encourage you. Not every, not every hill is a hill to die on. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a hill to die on. Die on it. Over every other thing, religious, irreligious, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done and going to do die on it. Over every personal preference, over every little nagging frustration, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a hill to die on. Die on it. And let me, since I'm saying this to you, let me encourage you, call me to the same thing. That we not ever be a church that is making mountains out of molehills when there's only one mountain worth dying on. Live as bold witnesses to him. And then last, certainly not least, in a room like this, what do you do with the sovereignty of Jesus Christ breaking the seals and bringing about the the end of days? What do you do with that? Well, if you've never repented and believed in him to begin with, you will not wait on him in faith. You will not pray to him for justice, and you will not live as a bold witness to him. 
So if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me encourage you to do this. Repent. Turn from your current life and pursuit of your own life and all the lies that go with it, the sins that are consumed in it. Turn from it and turn to Jesus Christ as the only hope of life and joy and peace. Believe in him. And then let us know about it so that one day we can stand and do with you what we've done with these two young ladies this morning and celebrate the fact that though you'll be persecuted, that though you may face hardship, together we'll stand in eternity singing praises to the name of our Father and our Savior. Let's pray.